Hello, I'm Elder Greg Newman, and I want to welcome you to New Hope Fellowship Online. I want to thank you for tuning into this message. I hope and pray that it helps you grow in your relationship with Jesus and challenges you to study God's Word. If you'd like more information on who we are as a church, you are invited to nhfchurch.org. If you're interested in partnering with us financially to help us continue to share the gospel with those around us, visit nhfchurch.org and click on Give. Again, I'm thankful that you are here listening, and I hope you enjoy this message. I have to hustle with that bumper. I'm not moving quick. But tomorrow night, if you want to watch a really good football game, (laughs) the Steelers are playing, and I'm not sure it's going to be worth your, your time. But as we get into this series, this is a kind of more of a micro series these next few weeks to kind of, who are we as a church? What are we about? And last week we looked a little bit about vision in some ways of who are we? We're empowered. We looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And this week, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4 of kind of looking at this serving concept is where it's really heading. That's the theme. So if you're new to scripture, if you jump to the very end of your Bible's revelation and go left, you'll come to 1 Peter quicker. And it's Revelation, and you'll find John, Jude's, Peter, Peter, he'll be right in there. If you don't know, right in the table of contents, you'll find First Peter chapter 4 is where we find ourselves. And, and this book is written by the Apostle Peter. He's one of the 12 who walked with Jesus, and he's really detailing in his letter to the church, how do you live? How do we function in the world that we live in? facing persecution, facing a different culture, and how do we navigate it well? So he gives different instructions for different uh, groups from marriage and family he speaks about to how do we deal with suffering to what we're going to look at today of how do we do a God-honoring, people-edifying, kingdom-advancing life? In essence, how do we serve others? How do we, that's at the essence of ministry, that word just means serve. So how do we serve well? How do we be God-honoring in our service? How do we be people edifying? How do we be kingdom advancing is that concept. And so you have in your weekly, and you can keep this to the side of a first serve opportunities. And I mentioned often we have on board and off board, easy on, easy off opportunities for you to serve, to dive into ministry, whether it's in group life, which you'll see the insert next week for groups. There's also online, but to serve. There's something about that shared experience when you're with one another and rubbing elbows that there's this experience that you gather of the one another's. And so inside your weekly, there's a bunch of list of opportunities. You can just check one, spell out your name, and it does not sign you up for life. Like I said, it's on and off. And so we monitor and keep an eye on how long have you been serving? Have you been in youth ministry for two semesters? Well, then take a semester off. We're going to make you do that. Group leader, you've been serving twice. We're going to make you take one off to just allow the ebb and the flow of life. And it might be an opportunity in a season where you have lots of time, where it gets to the summer, you have zero time. And so you serve where you can, when you can, not just at your leisure, but looking for those opportunities. And so Peter speaks to this of how we live. And it really starts in chapter 3, starting in verse 17, to build the case for chapter 4. And he says this in verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So if you suffer, if you go through hardship, people, it's hopefully for the right reasons that because of what you're doing, that's why you're experiencing suffering or persecution, however that may look. It says, verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, 
the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So he does it for Christ also suffered. He looked at the cross and said, what's the result of the cross? The end result of if I go to the cross, if I die, if I become a curse, what is the result of that? Well, the result is that you and I get to know God, that the relationship gets to be restored. And so for the joy of the cross, it says, Jesus didn't like it. Jesus didn't want to do it. But he realized the end result was worth going through it because of a love for you and I, which is what Peter is saying here. Let us suffer then for doing what is right. For Christ also, or he's our example, also suffered once for sin, the righteous person for the unrighteous. So that he being put to death in the flesh, that's what sin ultimate end is, is death, might rise again to the spirit. So if we know Christ, there's also a resurrection that happens. We will all be resurrected. There will be a judgment. But where do we spend eternity? And Christ died once for the unrighteous so that we could be made righteous. Verse chapter 4, verse 1 says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So how do we start this God-honoring people edifying? It starts by a new attitude, which some of us need. It's a new year, new attitude, right? We just need, that's what you have control over in life. If you don't have control over how people respond to you, you have the ability to respond to other people and circumstances. You choose your attitude. You choose how you're going to deal with each and every situation and people around you. And so he talks about this idea for a new attitude to establish since Christ, for the joy set before him, despised the shame of the cross. Therefore, we take on the same perspective of him that we live in the world, but we're not of the world. We live in the world and we're going to face hardships, but we choose how we go through that. We can mumble and complain, moan and groan and say, woe is me. Or we can realize that we're going to face some hardships. We're going to go through life. And we have the choice of how we do that with bitterness, resentfulness, anger, frustration. Not that that's not part of life. And not that there's not moments and situations that you are going to be angry, frustrated, upset. Lean into it. Be okay with it. Don't stay there. It's a new attitude. So arm yourselves just as Christ suffered. We're going to suffer and so in these three things, he says, arm yourselves, one, with the attitude of Christ. Two, your struggle against sin is a good thing. What is sin? Well, sin is both an action but also a thought. James speaks to it that your thought life leads to that sin action, that you dwell on it, you meditate, you think on it, then that leads into action or you stay there. Jesus said if you thought anger or hatred towards someone, then you've already committed murder in your heart. And so you can see that sin is it's both a thought life and it's the actions. It's not just the actions. I just thought about it. Well, no. Your thought life will lead you there. What's inside will always come out. So he says, arm yourselves with the attitude of Christ. Your struggle against sin, it's a good thing. Persecution, that's okay. They say, well, why is that okay? That's not fun. Well, actually, the, the early church spread rapidly through persecution. That when they were in, when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost and then the great persecution breaks out, why did God let that happen? When you read the book of Acts, you read that everyone was sharing, everything was good, hunky-dory in Jerusalem, and then a great persecution breaks out. 
And what do the disciples do? All the disciples, they scatter to the wind and they go to multiple different cities, multiple different places, and Christianity just starts to spread because God said, go. When the Holy Spirit comes, you're here to go. They don't go. So God says, okay, let me give you a little push. Get out of the nest. Get going. And it was hardships. It was persecution. And living God's will. How do we get a new attitude? We're living for God's will, which we explored last week in 2 Corinthians, this new attitude. We are these clay vessels that are chipped, that are broken, that are fragile, that are these pieces that God chooses to use in the world around us. And in 2 Corinthians, if you did your homework last week, you would have read chapter 5, which we didn't get to. And it says this in verse 17, Therefore, because we have this power, because Christ is dwelling within us, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. You're new in Christ, meaning your past is not held against you. You're going to make mistakes. It doesn't mean you don't realize that because of choices in the past, poor choices, good, whatever, you, don't, you still have to deal with that. But you're not defined by that anymore. You can change. You have the ability. God doesn't see you as your past. He sees you as a new creation. You're his son. You're his daughter whom he loves, whom he's going to let things happen to to grow your faith. He's going to put people around you to encourage you. All of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us, you and me, to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Jesus left to go be with the Father and he sent the Holy Spirit so he gives you and me the ability but also the commissioning to be really his ambassadors, we'll get to in a minute, but that gospel sharing message. You're called in your families in your work environment, to the people around you, you are called to share this ministry of reconciliation, this good news, this new creation, this joy you found in Christ with others. That is, in Christ, God, it says, was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses or sins against them, and entrusting to us the message of that reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What's an ambassador? An ambassador is a, someone who goes and says, my thought life, my actions, I'm representing the whole people group. So what does America do? We send out ambassadors to different countries, and that ambassador represents you and me. Whether we like it or not, they are representative for the 300 plus million people that make up the United States. They reflect that in the country they are in. And they are saying that my attitude, my actions, my words, my thoughts, how I carry myself is a reflection of everyone in the United States. Whether we like that or not, that's what the ambassadorship is for and promoting what the values and culture of America has into those countries. So reverse that then and think, okay, what does God say? We are his ambassadors. So he's saying, you are a reflection of Christ. And the way that you talk and the way that you act and the way that you respond and your attitude in life to those around you. And you're telling people, just by the way you live, by the way you talk, by the way you carry yourself, this is how God lives. This is who God is. Which is somewhat sobering if you think about your own life. And I think about my own life, my own mistakes at times of, oh, I don't, do a great job of that all the time. And yet God entrusts us with this good news, this gospel, to share that. And so 
in 1 Peter, what he's saying is he's encouraging and imploring that you and I, since he suffered, Christ did, arm yourselves like him. As he thought, as he looked at things, keep your attitude in check there. Forrest Gump, some of you remember that movie, once said, life is like a box of chocolates. You, unless you flip up the box, <laughs> then you don't have to eat the coconut chocolates. Those are my least favorite. But you, life is like that. You really don't know what you're going to get. Tomorrow could hold news that you weren't expecting. It could be an email. It could be a phone call. It could be a letter. You don't know. And it's this new attitude. It's that old song, no turning back, that as you embrace on this journey with Christ, no turning back. It's that old, old song, no turning back, no turning back. I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. Though none go with me, no turning back. And it's this concept that Christ is sufficient for all, and there is a cost to following him. And he speaks about this. It's in your mind, as I mentioned, Philippians 4, 6 through 7 speaks to this. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, make your request known to God. So when you go to God, you're to go to him with everything. Don't be anxious, which I can get anxious. You are probably anxious at times. So when you find yourself there, Paul is saying, don't be, but you are, so go to prayer. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, I mean, every situation, every relationship, every decision you're about to make, good, bad, should I buy gum, should I not buy gum? Is that on the budget or not? <laughs> Pray about it. See what God says. But petition him, and it says, then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds, which tells you in that verse that God won't solve your problem, but as you pray to him, that he will give you the wisdom and discernment to know how to navigate said problem. And you'll have that peace, like financial peace. It brings that financial conundrum into a, I know a plan. There's an expectation of what to expect. Sometimes that's all I want. What should I expect in this situation? What should I know so I can just prepare myself for what is good or bad? I just want to know what to expect. And Philippians says, pray about everything because then the peace that surpasses will guard your hearts and minds. And when I pray that, I say, God, you promised. When you pray that prayer, you can just make it your own and write your own name in there and say, God, I, this, and name it. And as you bring it to him, you're simply reminding God, you promised peace. I want that peace. You promised this. You're a good father. And he hears and he listens it speaks also of our mind game, of to take every thought captive. 2 Corinthians 10.5 speaks to this. To take every thought captive. Because any thought, any little thing can move us in the wrong direction. Sometimes we have to say, no, that's a wrong way of thinking. Which is why we need each other, which is why you need group life and others around you. Because sometimes in our heads, we have a narrative that goes running. And we believe certain things or think certain things. And if we have a group that we can say, hey, I just need to bounce some of this off some of you. I'm wrestling with this. Same with the, the whole purpose of financial peace together is to bring it out into the open of where each of us are at and to just be able to strategize and talk. Part of what I'll do here and I've been doing and building relationships with other churches, other pastors, and I did it in New York the same way, is just we all face the same things in church life, for the record. Our problems at New Hope are the same problems over at other churches, from Uniontown to LifePoint to Grace Fellowship Chapel. They're the same. It's sometimes just scalability. Some churches are bigger, but we all deal with similar problems. And sometimes we just need some outside help 
to just bounce off, hey, I'm wrestling as a church with this situation. How do we expand the parking lot? Who do we call? And someone else could have dealt with this problem, said, hey, I got an idea. Here's how we did. It's bouncing off. It's taking the thought cap and saying, we can't do this. I don't No, You get around other people. You get in a group and you start to trust and you start to build those bridges to take every thought captive. Because what does it say in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, a few verses later, it says, no temptation has overcome you except what is common to man. Meaning that as you struggle in life with your thought life and you go there when you're in group and you're able to talk and you're able to change the narrative in your head and you're able to get out of your isolation into community, you start to be able to navigate life. And the temptations that you face, you find other people have faced. And it says and continues in that verse that because there's no temptation that is common, God provides a way out. How does he provide a way out? Your eyes have to be on him. You got to be focused on him. So as you go through your struggles in life, if your eyes are fixed on him, then you know, in this situation, I need to get out of it. I need to move away from it. No turning back. Again, further in your thought life, Philippians 4.8 speaks to this. And I love what he says here in Philippians 4.8. Paul continues after that, you know, the peace that surpasses all understanding. He goes further, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, which tells again and emphasizes our thought life. Our attitude starts up here with our thoughts then it displays out from there. And if our narrative in our heads is, woe is me, I'm bitter, I'm angry, that will come out of your mouth, that will come out of your body language and your tone. It's just how it is. It's how it works. And yet God says that he's given us a spirit of power and authority and of sound mind. And that means that you can change your attitude and you have that ability to respond differently that maybe you have in the past. And so Peter is encouraging us, since Christ suffered, arm yourselves with this new attitude, this new way of thinking. The new attitude is hard to do. What does it look like displayed? Galatians 5.22, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. That's what will start to be modeled. As you put on this new attitude, those character traits start to develop within you. And it's not tomorrow that they are all there. It's not in a week. It's not in a month, it's not in a year, not in 10 years. They'll finally be when you're dead. They'll all be there. You work on them. You start and you slowly get better and better and better. And you say, okay, this year I'm gonna work on gentleness and watch what God does on scenarios so that you can practice being gentle. And then he'll put empathy and say, let's work on him and watch what he does. He'll put EGR people around you, extra grace required and you'll have lots of empathy. But it's that concept that he says, you want this, and I want this for you, so I'm gonna allow you to experience and try it. And that's our responsibility, is then to live in it, to live with the tension of being unfinished, but having this new attitude, that of Christ. The second is that you have a struggle against sin. Here's a great theological debate. Some of you are theologians, and for the record, if you read the Bible, you are a theologian, that's all that means. But some of you are really deep divers and want to go nitty-gritty. And it says to this, so as to live for the rest of the time, at the end of verse 1, it says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So you get this old Arminian-Calvin debate. If those of you love that, we're not going there, sorry. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. It's an old Reformed Arminian debate of 
So once you come to Christ, you never sin again, and that's not true. You do sin. If you've been with Christ, you know that. Your thought life will betray you. And Peter is not saying that you will never sin again. It's that you start to fight and war against just giving in. Just saying, yep, I'm just going to keep going with the flow because that's what's been easiest. Jesus spoke to his disciples in, in Luke 9. He says, and he said to them, Jesus speaking, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and the my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And he's saying it, it's this daily walk with Christ. You must deny yourself, pick up your cross, death to yourself, and follow me. I mentioned last week George Mueller, and they said, how do you do it, George? How do you care for hundreds of orphans? How do you have a successful ministry? And he goes, there was a day I died. Not physically, but died to his own wants and his own desires for Christ. That he laid down his life and said, it's not about me. It's about others. It's not about me. It's about my spouse. It's not about me. It's about my coworkers. I look as a pastor here. I am most successful when my staff is thriving. Okay, not how well I preach. Is my staff thriving? Am I giving them the ability to thrive? Am I encouraging? Am I walking with them? Am I shepherding them well? Because if they are doing well, then the church as a whole will do well. Am I working well with the elder team as well? Because if we're doing well at the top leadership, then we as a church will do well. And if there's fractures and fighting at the top, you better believe a church will fracture and fight as well. So success doesn't matter about me. It's putting, laying down my life and serving others. It's putting my wife in a position where she can flourish and become the woman that God has called her to be, not just what I want and my desires, and likewise for you. And that's our calling, and you will fail. And you recognize that, and you own it, and you get back up and say, I messed up here. Let me get back on the horse. Let me get back to going. It's a daily struggle. It's a daily fight Again, as Greg said with the financials, 2012, well, it's 2023. It's a slow and steady process to get where they have gotten financially. It's the same way in our spiritual walk. Slowly, day by day. Faithfulness isn't glamorous. So we have this new attitude. There's, there's no ceasing from sin. One commentator writes, you don't ever not sin again. He observes that the phrase has ceased from sin depicts the spiritual state of the victorious sufferer. It carries a note of triumph. He has effectively broken with the life dominated by sin. It need not mean that he no longer commits any act of sin, but that his old life, dominated by the power of sin, has been terminated. What used to be a vice control is still something I war and wage against, but it does not complete me. It does not own me anymore. I am a new creation in Christ. And you pray that over whatever it is that you wrestle with and struggle with. It's this new attitude, I can Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We'll read the first two verses first. I've learned to be content in all things, whether I've had a lot or whether a little. I've learned to cope in life because of Christ who strengthens me. That's the point of that. You get to the third part. He says, arm yourselves with that attitude. Your struggle against sin is okay. It's a daily walk, daily fight. And the third part of these just first few verses is living for God's will. What is God's will? Well, we are his ambassadors as we looked at last week. 
and we're these clay jars that have been filled with the Holy Spirit and we're broken and we're tattered and we have baggage and we have issues and yet we have this treasure within us to share because it's not about us, it's about God and what he has done and we share that and we get to use that. Psalm 37.3, one of my favorite verses that's inside, I have it printed on the inside cover of my Bible, just says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. You read another verse in Micah 6, 8, Old Testament says, what does the Lord require of you of Israel? When Israel was wandering away and not doing right, the prophet says, and speaking to God, thus saith the Lord, they would say in the Old Testament, this is what God said, and so they wrote it down. What does God want of you, Israel? Why is God upset with you, Israel? What does God desire of you? And this is what he wants, but to do justice, to love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Justice doesn't quite look how we would say justice. There's a whole good book called Generous Justice by Tim Keller. If you read that, you'd realize when you pray for justice, be careful. It's at your cost usually because true justice is different than what we tend to think of it. It's actually at a cost to us to help others. And so what was God mad about with Israel was that they weren't doing anything justly. They were taking advantage of people. They were robbing them. They weren't kind. And he just wanted them to simply walk with me, live with me, humbly, do what I've called you to do. Be faithful in your marriage. Be faithful and do hard work at your job. Love on your kids, love your neighbor. That's what he wanted and that's what they were not doing. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12, the apostle writes this about how we're to live and this is okay, going to the new covenant. Like that was old, here's the new. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and dependent on no one. Another verse is Psalm 73. You read that, and I've preached on this before. It's this concept where the, the Asaph is saying, I almost, I worshiped God, and I almost lost my faith. I almost walked away because I see those who are bullies, who are arrogant and getting away with everything. And I started to look inward and say, why don't I have what they have? And I'm starting to compare myself. And I say, woe is me. And I get depressed and anxious. He goes, until... I went into the house of the Lord, and then I realized where they're headed, and I glamorized them and thought they had it all together, when in reality, they have no relationship with God, and their end is the dust of the earth, and I have Christ. And it's that same concept. We tend to compare and contrast. They have this. I don't have that. I want this. It's what I mentioned. I can choose to admire without the need to acquire. I can admire Nice cars. Again, I told you, I want a 1965 Shelby GT Mustang, metallic blue, two white racing stripes down the middle. <laughs> but I can admire that and say, I, I can enjoy my minivan. I've got that. That's right. That's what I learned to drive it in high school. Nothing like a purple minivan driving to junior in high school. But it got me from point A to point B. God provided. And it's the same here. Choose to admire without that need to acquire. But are you picking up a theme with each of these verses to live quietly, to live humbly, to live within your means, to live in such a way that people are drawn to you, that when they look at you and they interact with you, they think, what's different? What is so unique about you? And it's Christ. And it all goes back to him because we're, we're these clay jars that are just mundane, normal people that live extraordinarily lives. Not radical, not crazy, not making a ruckus, just living Humbly. There's a phrase from, an, from a, it's a Disney movie, Kung, what is it? Kung Fu Panda. It's a great quote for the record. Do what you can, 
then do what's possible, and before you know it, you're doing the impossible. Do what you can. That means what you can today. You can't climb a mountain today. You can't do all. You can't get out of debt today. You can't have all these character traits, Galatians 5.22, but you do what you can. Then you start to say, okay, what's possible? And you start to do that. And before you know it, you look back and you're saying, well, we're doing the, the impossible. And we look at that over the life, and that's a lifetime of looking back and saying, I'm just doing what I can. And then you start to see, okay, well, this is possible because I'm consistently doing the right thing. So then the possible starts to come in. And then you look back and you're saying, well, we're, we're doing something that no one expected. And we're able to impact things and lives that we would have never guessed. Again, it's that ripple effect of people's lives that we engage in. Grandparents, your engagement with your grandkids, parents to your kids, Sunday school teachers, youth group leaders, scrubbing toilets, putting signs up around the church, laying gravel so we're not in the mud hole in the back 40 here for cars. It's little things. And God says, just be faithful with that. So our lives should reflect what is opposite of verse 3, which says this, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want. And Gentiles was just those that are non-Jews. The Jews lived a very monotheistic life, God, and worshiped him, period. The the Gentiles were known as the pagans, the non-Jews, and they worshiped anything and everything and did whatever they wanted, passions and vices. He says, for the time that is past suffices, meaning it's gone for doing what they wanted, what the world around us wants, which is living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not rejoin them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. It's a whole other theological debate, that last verse 6 part of it. It's this new lifestyle. That as we have a new attitude, we start to get this new lifestyle. We live. And here's the thing. It depends on when you start to live for Christ. If it's early in life you're raised in the church, you'll notice some of this. But if you come to Christ later, sometimes your friend group, sometimes your family group, all of a sudden starts to take a hit. And not in like a bad way that you're fighting with them. Sometimes it does that. But all of a sudden you start to notice your priorities are different from theirs. Your goals are different from theirs. And it's like, well, wait a minute. What am I doing with this group. They don't align with my goals. They're, they're my thought life when I'm around them is actually not positive or impacting me in a, in a good way. And for those of you that are single looking to, and dating, don't evangelize date. Meaning you don't date someone who doesn't know Christ or is not open to it because you think you're going to positively corrupt them. They will do the vice versa. That's why Jesus speaks to and Paul speaks to don't be unequally yoked Christian to Christian. It's not that people are, they are evil, but because it'll take you away. It'll separate and divide. And so what he's going into is this new lifestyle that as you live for Christ, Romans 12 speaks to this. Some people just simply are not going to understand you anymore. They're going to live a life and you're going to start to live differently and you're going to start to lose maybe family connections, good friendships that were strong, you thought, but realize that as you walk further and further with Christ, they're not on the same boat. And God will provide. God has always brought people into my life at just the right time to encourage and uplift me. He'll do the same for you. It's why it is important that we gather together on Sunday. It's important for group life for that reason. We need each other who think like-mindedly to, to care for one another. You come to Christ early in life. You don't always see this. You come to Christ later. If you've walked away and gotten in with a group, you start to see the difference as you follow more and more with Christ. Their choices, their preferences start to be distant, and you have to make that choice. 
Do I continue or do I start to pull back? Do I change a little bit? Again, in high school, when I switched high schools and I was, and made that decision that I'm a follower of Christ and I'm going to not just go on Sundays and talk the talk and say the right answers, but I'm going to live it out. And as I did that, when I switched high schools and wasn't really popular at the first high school I was at, I was just, I transferred from private school to public school and shifted and they knew my past, they knew my mistakes. And so I had a few close friends. And when I switched, it's like you start fresh and over. And as I did that, they didn't know me. I had this newfound confidence in Christ. And so I was around people. And both those that were saved, those that were unsaved, those were nerds, and it was fun to just kind of mix and match and just engage with people. And people would invite me to parties. I just didn't go to where they stopped inviting me, to where they didn't even tell me there was a party anymore because I just didn't, wasn't priority. Some of those friendships that I was like, oh, this is great at first, started to wane over my senior year and into college where I don't, I don't keep up with anybody from high school. And I don't know the impact that I've had with some of those friends of living differently. I don't know. But it's that cost that we live differently. We're all judged, it says, to that. When it says in verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join in with them. Verse 5, but they will give account to him who is ready. We're all going to face judgment. We're going to have to give an account. As Christians, we get to do it twice. Isn't that fun? You get the white throne judgment, heaven, hell, you're in, you're out, which is do you know Christ, which is so important that we share him. And then we get to go what's called the Bema seat, which is just means, okay, how'd you live? Once you came to know Christ, you are building something in heaven. Put a shack in the woods is better than the alternative, but you are building something in heaven. So you get to go before God and say, okay, and when I came to know Christ, how did your life start to change? How did it start to shift? And it won't be all at once. It's a slow and steady process. So he ends this chapter, this verse, few verses, use your God-given gifts to serve others then. Since we change our attitude, we live a different lifestyle, then we're to use our God-given gifts to serve others. Now here's the thing, he says in verse seven, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ and to him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Three things he's reminding us of. Be sober-minded so that your prayer life matters. Be thinking, be processing be real, be open, be honest. Don't just say, oh, bless this food. Thank you, thank you, done. No, be sober-minded. Loving others well. Love covers a multitude of sin, meaning we choose to love others. Love is a choice. It's also a feeling times, but mostly a choice. But loving others well also means healthy boundaries with people. Does it mean you solve their problems? Does it mean you fix them? It means you love them well sometimes by establishing boundaries with them and care, which doesn't happen instantly, which means maybe I wait to respond to the text message or the email because it's in crisis for them does not mean crisis for you. And that's how I've had to learn and grow my own self of just because it's your crisis does not mean it's my crisis. I'm here to help, but I also have a family. I have a wife and I have kids. And in some relationships, they will suck you dry. We all have people like that in our lives. And so it's okay to have boundaries, still love them, still be kind, but love them well. And hospitality, care for each other well, walk with each other through the good and the bad. 
realize that church is full of imperfect people and how hard it must be for some who, who are, don't know Christ, who flock and sin to walk through these doors that we don't quite look like a church, still tough to pull in this parking lot. And then when our own sins from the church family, when our sins get made public, you know how hard it is to walk back in these doors sometimes? When I hear that, I say, come sit with me. They won't talk to the pastor. They won't give you any, I promise you. But sometimes our own sins get made out. And it's like, we're full of imperfect people. We're all gonna have our struggles. And if we think everyone in here has it all together, you're wrong. We don't. We know who does, Christ. And so we lean into him and we trust him. Church is full of the imperfect people. The thing is you keep coming. You keep showing up because you keep putting yourself in a position to hear God's word preached, to, to be around community and fellowship. So what's your next step? Glad you asked. There's a serve card. It's a chance for you to step in and serve. Use your God-given gifts. Romans 12 has a list of gifts. 1 Corinthians 12 has a list of gifts. Those are not exclusive or exhaustive of the only gifts. It's looking at that saying and praying and thinking, where can I participate in the ministry of New Hope? Where can I serve? Where can I give of my time, my talents, my energies? And maybe it's none of that list and you can come talk to me. We'll work it out. We'll talk it through. Or maybe it's just on the fun day that we have in the spring to spruce up the campus. Maybe it's just once or twice a year you can give of your time. But it's not just being free and giving with your money. It's, it's giving of your time and talents. It's being in a group and saying, oh, there's an issue here. Let's meet the need of that person in this group. They need help here. Let's just do it. Let's pray for them. Let's love them well. So new help, how do we build a God-honoring, people-edifying, kingdom-advancing ministry with a new attitude, a new lifestyle, and serving others? To walk humbly with God. We don't have to, we change the world that way. You do what you can, which means right here, right here in Westminster, we do what we can. And we start to look at what's possible. We lean into that. And then we start to do what is impossible. And people say, you, well, you do what? And our reputation changes and people hopefully will know new hope. As that's the church that cares about Westminster. And that's for Westminster. They do it well. They don't get it all figured out. They love well. They care well. And I share the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful to be gathered here in your name to know you and to worship you in our words and our actions. Lord, we thank you for the songs that we have sung, the song that we'll conclude here with. And as we go through the rest of our day, both today and in tomorrow and in this week ahead, we ask for your blessing on our lives to have eyes to see the people you place around us. Who do we lean into, Jesus? Who do we serve a little better? Who do we care for a little better? How do we do that? Or we have ears to hear the people who we talk to and, and eyes to see that our coworkers that we're around, the people on the street who we come into contact with, and just our attitudes, Lord, if nothing more than to just to look at the joy that we have in you and let our body language and our and our just our tone speak to that. No matter what we're going through, allow us to recognize the hope that we have. Allow us to serve others well. And if we need boundaries, Lord, teach us to have healthy boundaries and to say no where that needs to be. But may you guard our hearts and minds for you. And may we find you this week in the mundane of life. And may we be faithful with what you've given us. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.